with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another snowy edition of Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick, your host, sitting here in the office watching the white stuff fall over the place. It's awesome. Anyways, with me all the way from, well, I guess, where it's raining, uh, is the gold standing and ghost hunting, Mr. Steve Parsons. No, it's not raining. Where so happens? what are you complaining about raining? We were shoveling rain. I don't know why you're shoveling rain. That's a peculiarity of you Americans. That's what you said. We have a very balmy spring-like week. Well, whatever. Anyways, uh, we have a good show today. We have someone uh, who has been on the show before talking about... What, they come back a second time? Bigfoot previously, (laughs) and now we're going to look into some of the other stuff he does. So... uh, he is the founder of Rise Up Paranormal, and he is none other than Ken DaCosta. Gentlemen, how's everyone today? I can't believe you've come back a second time. No guest comes back twice. I am a glutton for punishment, Stephen. <laughs> I'm guessing you must be, Ken. It's actually his third time, if you really must know, because he was on the uh, next show, too, as well, the Next Generation. So. Oh, my God. Who are you? Once again, well, you have was, erroneous uh, information, Parsons, as usual. Well, actually, I was outside doing some snow shoveling, so I just wanted to come in and warm up, and my phone rang. So here I am. <laughs> yeah, well, this is where we'll warm up, that's for sure. Anyways, uh, Ken, you are the founder of Rise Up paranormal so uh i want to find out a little bit about rise up paranormal where you located and uh when was it founded and all that happy stuff yeah we're based in uh rhode island and um we were founded in 2007 um before then i wasn't really a part of any group or anything like that but my son had the same interest as i did and he was going to college with a couple of his buddies who did and um you know, five of us started this thing back then and got together and just decided that, uh, you know, let's go out and talk to some people and visit some of these locations and, uh, you know, use our own objectivity and assess the situation. And in doing that, um, maybe answer their questions and some of our own. So, uh, the group's grown. It's, uh, we have, uh, affiliates in five of the six New England states now, um, not in a way of conquering the world or anything like that, but just trying to, um, you know, embrace that same idea of unbiased sort of reasoning and things like that, where, uh, you know, we try to be, uh, honest people giving honest answers to the best of our ability. So, you know, um, so there it is. Here we are. Well, I can, because uh, it seems you like told- a be- it's uh, why do we have affiliates? Why do we need affiliates? I mean, is what was the purpose? I mean, it must serve a need. What is that need? 
Oh, we don't. I mean, um, I certainly don't think so. I was approached by people who wanted to um, share information and share data and things like that. So they wanted to know if they could kind of come on board and embrace that. You know, and it's not like we have Rise Up This or Rise Up Hawaii and Rise Up Ohio. <laughs> you know, all of these people, you know, they have their own identity as um, as groups and so forth and so on. I think it's more uh, a question of, um, you know, sharing knowledge, asking questions, whether it's about, um, you know, latest technology or, you know, asking if, um, you know, what do you think about this particular situation, maybe giving them some guidance on that or bouncing uh, uh, ideas back and forth off of so it's, so, it's more It's more know, of a it, net, network? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, affiliates probably the, um, you know, the accepted term that people use, you know, it's a little presumptuous. It may, you know, it sounds like you've got this worldwide web of, of people and it's not really that it's just, um, everybody that, uh, embraces the same methodology for, for the most part and, uh, are able to ask questions and sort of, um, confer with each other on, um, past experiences, what do you think, uh, you know, uh, of this, that, and the other thing. And I think it's a good thing to share information like that. Oh, it definitely is. And, and it, to me, it, one of the things that uh, uh, I guess it, it kind of annoys me is that a lot of people will ask you, if, well, can I name my group something or other, like uh, California Ghost Project or, or something like that. And I've always been adverse to it because uh, – we want to be standalone. We want to be responsible for what we do. We don't want other people. Uh, we don't want to be responsible for other people that we have absolutely no control of. So to sure. me, that has always been uh, a uh, sticking point in, in my philosophy. Anyways, what about you, Parsons? What do you think about all this, Parsons? We lose Steve. I just heard a beep that's possible. Maybe Is, that you know, Is that better? Well, now you're back, yeah. Yeah, well, there we go then. I was going to say, I mean, there's actually there's nothing really stopping anybody calling themselves the Ohio Ghost Project or the Rhode Island Ghost Project or the New England Parascience. Yeah, but you don't have to endorse it. Uh, yeah, no, you don't have to endorse it, but you sometimes have to suck it up, and that's the problem. I mean, we've got, you know, I've forgotten how many societies for psychical research and innumerable ghost clubs. There's even a couple of parasciences out there. Um, and I think the, the way to separate yourselves from them, put clear blue water between you and them, is to set a standard uh, that they can't attain. And uh, I think then people will realize that there are differences between you and them. Yeah, but you you have I know you've done your your courses ghostology and and uh-huh. once once people have done this ghostology course they they've kind of used that as credentials for for their group and everything is isn't that a little annoying? Uh, well, no. To be honest, uh, it depends on how they use it. I mean, if they say yes, I've been on the course and they recommend it, that's a good thing. Uh, if they use it as a badge of honor. I mean, one of the things that I've always made absolutely clear is that um, if anybody participates in ghostology or even reads the book or that that is not a uh, there's no certificate. 
there's no uh, award, there's no badge, there's absolutely nothing apart from the attendance and the information that they gain from that. Uh, what does annoy me a little bit is that, is you, is that uh, quite recently I, uh, I noticed that, because if you recall, the, the book is actually called Ghostology, The Art of the Ghost Hunter, which mm-hmm. separated it from an earlier book that came out in the 1920s or 30s, I think. Uh, and there's also a called Ghostology, and there's also Ghostology 101, which is an American book. Mm-hmm. Um, now, quite recently, I've noticed several people doing uh, their own thing and promoting it as the art of the ghost hunter. Now, that's something that I thought was unique to me, uh, mm-hmm. was, a, was something I created. Obviously, somebody thought it sounded cool and pinched it. Um, it's also very annoying when you find the entire uh, text of a book that you wrote um, available to download on YouTube um, or, and other social platforms. And that's, that requires a bit of careful monitoring to make sure that they get taken down regularly. But it's something, I mean, for, from my perspective, I'd rather the information gets out there um, and that the good practice, the word for good practice is spread. Okay. So, kind of take it on the chin. Okay, fair enough. So, back back to you, Ken. All right, right, Ken, you were going to say something? Yeah, I mean, excuse me, the analogy I make to this is I talk about this thing with paranormal unity, which is some mantra, some (laughs) some, some banner. (laughs) Yeah, you know, some banner that everyone flies. And the analogy that I use, gentlemen, really is that if I were to sit down with you and I say, you know, yeah, you know, I, I, I like to play cards. And you say, oh, I love to play cards. So I say, okay, why don't you come to my house next Friday? I have a group. We get together. We play poker or what have you. So why don't you come by and meet the fellas and come on over and everything. So you do. And it ends up that uh, you're an incredible loudmouth and you cheat at cards And, you know, you just don't have a good demeanor about it. So the idea that because we have a common interest, I am supposed to support you unconditionally, I think is a fallacy. Because now, on the other hand, if you want to go cheat at cards and be a loud mouth and obnoxious at somebody else's house, you go right ahead and do that. But you're not going to be welcome with me. And I look at it the same way. It's like I'm not saying that one practice is better than another. Um, I think there's some unscrupulous people out there doing this, to be sure, that have managed to monetize it. And, and there's nothing wrong with that if they're coming at it from an honest perspective. But, you know, the idea that we have to unconditionally support someone who, you know, we just don't hit it off with – um, I, I think that's a little bit too much, you know, so I, I, I kind of look, I kind of look at it in those terms, you know, I, I, I'm not obligated just because you're a ghost hunter and I have an interest in it to embrace everything that you do. And likewise, you don't have to embrace everything that I do either. Now, para unity is a complete myth. Uh, but, of you know, this, this idea that we're all in it for the same thing is is equally it's a myth too. <laughs> it's a myth too, yeah. Uh, and yeah. there is there's actually nothing more uh, frustrating than social media. Uh, you maintain a, a presence and you you give people information, 
And do you know what, down the years, I've actually withdrawn a lot from social media and offering um, an opinion or a comment because it usually ends up in a fight. And then somebody will quote, oh, well, you're supposed to be on the same side. There's all this para-unity. And I thought you were... Yeah, no. I mean, you ask... If you want an opinion, if you want to hear what I've got to say, or if you don't want to hear what I've got to say, don't ask me. Well, the thing is, now Steve... Yeah, it, the the thing is now, if you and I'm trying not trying to paint with a wide brush here at all, but if you ask a lot of people randomly in the paranormal world and paranormal enthusiasts, whatever, what is your definition of success? Once upon a time, it used to be, well, you know, we run a systematic process, and regardless if we find anything or don't, as long as we follow you know, the correct path, maybe use the scientific method, whatever the case may be. More and more and more, if you ask people now in an unguarded moment, what is your definition of making appearances, uh, having my name on a poster, possibly doing television? And it's just like, no, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Those are your personal goals. I'm talking about how do you define success as an investigator? And more and more and more, it's not becoming about them. It's becoming about us. So um, it's fine if that's your path and you want to pursue it. I personally have a bit of a qualm with it because it seems more and more and more now that everyone wants the stage. And again, that's fine as long as you're still researching and trying to move ahead and, and educate yourself, uh, you know, et cetera and so forth. No, that's, I, you know, you're hitting the nails squarely on the head, Ken, with, with these comments. There was a, a, a good example, actually, uh, a few weeks ago, there was a, a new group popped up on social media. Uh, they were just in the initial stages of forming. They were seeking members, they were. Uh, they hadn't been on any investigations, uh, but the first thing they they did is set up their social media page, uh, tell people about them, tell people all of the things that they intended to do, and request likes and shares, because mm-hmm. that was more important than getting out and getting the job done. Right. And that's sad. I mean, I was fortunate, uh, like you, Ken, like Ron. I, you know, I grew up uh, in in my formative years as an investigator without social media, and there was no pressure on us to do anything except to report to the client and to, to deal with them. I, we could take weeks, months over working through the process of the investigation. There was no desire to get your EVP up the following morning onto social media to supplicate your followers. Um, I, I think I kind of feel sorry for the for the present generation, the social media generation, because they do have that additional pressure and that it is something that they have to deal with. Yeah, in a way, Steve, I don't. I don't really blame them because when they came to this, the template was already out there in terms Uh of television and radio Uh and appearances and so forth. So, you know, it's one thing you can sit here and throw stones, but in another way, if you just look at it dispassionately, it's, we came to this manner. There was no Uh internet and social media and television. There was none of that stuff. I'm not saying it's better or worse, 
But a lot of these people say, well, this is the template. Maybe do appearances, make T-shirts, uh-huh. get your name out there, get your picture, headshots, get autographs. Um, this is what they entered into in the early part of the century. That's perfectly true. Uh, we were, well, I guess we were the fortunate generation because we were able to pursue our investigations without that pressure. And I think that yeah. shows in the, in the manner in which the older groups uh, differ from the, the new generation because we put the process first um, right. without any recourse to the media or any – I mean that's very much a secondary consideration. But, I mean I've, I've always been media friendly, so I have nothing against the media. It's, it's how it's done, and I know you, Steve, and, and myself have done a lot of – uh, TV as well is, is not only here in, in your country and in my country, but also across the world. Mm-hmm. But the shows that we, we go on are more informative shows than they are uh, these these adventures that they have. Well, you know? well, no, actually, I mean, you can't say that, that Most Haunted or I'm Famous and Frightened or they were, I mean, they were pure entertainment shows. Oh, that's uh, true. That's true. Yeah, and I don't regret. Yeah, but you, you didn't. You didn't. You didn't compromise your standards. No, when no. You, when I, you... I think. I think it's perfect. I still maintain it's perfectly possible to work in um, the entertainment sphere and still convey good quality information. Mm. Uh, my contract was to give an honest, expert opinion on situations. And I stuck to that, uh, much to the frustration sometimes of the producers. But nonetheless, um, you know, it is perfectly possible. And it did allow me access to some great, great places. Uh, And, you know, it it helped me establish a network. And I I don't regret it at all. And I I still think that, you know, if the right opportunity for uh, presenting info... And let's be honest, and this is something that, that uh, Elliot O'Donnell and Harry Price and other uh, investigators in the past have, have realised, that if you want to educate and inform people, the best way to do it is to engage with them. And nowadays we have to engage through entertainment. Right, but mm-hmm. I know you have your standards because, you know... Oh, when, you've got to have standards. When you did, I mean, when you did that taping on the uh, USS Salem, uh, you refused to go on camera for, to to do a certain thing, and this was for me, mm-hmm. and vice versa, when I was doing uh, the show down in uh, East Bridgewater, uh, you did something that I wasn't happy for, and, mm-hmm. and I stood my ground on that. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we do have standards, but I, I you know, for instance, there, the, the, the shows that are out there are so demonic-based now that, you know, people do anything to get on the show, and, oh, and gotcha. recently... Yeah, a haunting contacted us, uh, and it was because of I, a case that we did. I, mean, I get contacted or anything, I just ignore them. But it was because of a case, so I, we agreed to do it. But uh, knowing the show itself, I, I wouldn't do an on-camera interview because I know exactly what they're going to do with the the information that you provide on it. So, and I can, you must have that same, you run into that same problem as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have um, touched the idea of television enough that I have a pretty clear understanding of how this goes. Um, It's not necessarily that they want you to hoax anything or be deceiving, but certainly they want you to convey an air of uh, danger and fear to the audience. And I mean, it is entertainment. We have to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's the that problem. Most young, 
most young investigators don't look at it. Most and a lot of people who watch it don't consider no. it as entertainment no, either. Well, it's you know, television, isn't it? <laughs> well, remember this. I mean, television is incredibly uh, an incredibly influential. Um, this is why we sell soap and golf clubs and and sedans on television. You're reaching that audience. You know, you get a. Uh, a, you know, a, a handsome man, a beautiful woman, a catchy slogan, a catchy jingle, and you influence people. And right now, I mean, let's face it, fear sells. And if you look at television, someone's always getting attacked or there's some family in danger. And these are the kind of stories that they want to tell. It's the kind of stories that they pursue. Mm-hmm. And it's incredibly influential. And you will see, if you're paying attention to these things, how all of this is cyclical, where we got away from a few years ago, these shows were starting to dissipate a little bit. And now suddenly what happens is they're coming back with a vengeance at this point, and most of them are um, um, all about, um, you know, fear-based elements and things like that. Right. It's interesting that we, you know, we mentioned about cyclical because when uh, so I think it was around about 2010, it looked like the bubble had burst. It looked like there was a, a, a certainly was a huge uh, stepping away from the, that genre of programming in the media. Um, and we thought, well, perhaps the time, you know, things are relaxing a little bit. The, the groups will start to dissipate and go on to looking at UFOs or cryptos or whatever else you want to look at uh, the next the next wave of the paranormal. But, you know, uh, we were wrong. It's it's showing no sign of dissipating this side of the Atlantic, at least. No, not here. Well, it, it's made a comeback here in yeah. the last um in the last year or so. And I find the amazing thing is I find now the emails are coming. The phone is ringing Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. people are looking at these things and identifying them. And in a lot of ways, self-diagnosing themselves, Mm -hmm. you know, if I, if I have three house flies in the house, that's an infestation now, you know, (laughs) know, and I, I, I'm not making of, of any of this because sometimes people innocently misidentify things. I understand that, but it's influential in terms of, you know, watching these things and identifying with them. And unfortunately, I mean, it's great because it brings people out of their shell. But then on the other hand, you have people who just for whatever reason, they want to be unique and they want to have something a little bit different in their lives and things. I mean, I know that we've probably all done this where we've showed up at a residence and to do an investigation of the place and they have a buffet and 12 people are waiting there for us where we've turned <laughs> into the the entertainment the evening you know and oh, yeah. I, I didn't oh, yeah. know we had an audience here you know but um the influences are there but we always have to be very guarded and very mindful about what our place is in these things Mm-hmm. And not um, and and not jump with both feet into that thing because it's very seductive and it's very easy to fall into that kind of thing. No, you're right. And I, mind you, I, I do look. You know, I do welcome a nice buffet. Um, I'm not you know I'm not averse to turning down uh, a sandwich, but as long as there's no cheese in it, the, you, you do see this other side of it as well. Uh, when you turn up at the, the uh, to 
to do an investigation, somebody's called you and you, you, you rock up, and they look at you somewhat disappointed that you didn't arrive in a big RV with blacked-out windows and <laughs> spend the next two hours unloading it and rolling cables and setting up cameras, and it's just you, a couple of people, and notebooks, pens, and you know, simple equipment. And they look disappointed as if you're not a real investigator. And that uh, that influence definitely comes from the media because that that's you know Zach and uh, the the crew from Most Haunted and Amy all have this portrayal that you have to turn up you know with in the RV wearing body armor, shades, and this sort of semi SWAT combat gear uh, in order to be an effective investigator. Yeah, I agree. That's weird. Do you hear something? That's yeah. strange. That's very anyway. strange. Very strange. Anyways, uh, Ken uh, has. Uh, I want to talk to you about some of the cases you did when we come back after the break, as we're heading towards the break. And uh, and also, I want to talk to you about the course, um, <clears throat> the Ocean State Paracon, uh, which you've been running for quite a while now, and and uh, for a good cause as well. So. We'll talk about that when we come uh, back. Oh, we still got a couple of minutes. So, uh, do you want to touch on the uh, the Yosin State Paracon now before we do go to the break? Sure, absolutely. This will be the uh, eighth annual conference that we've had. Um, so far to date, we've raised thirty thousand dollars for charities and advocacy programs here in Rhode Island. And um, all proceeds are donated to whoever we designate for that charity every year. And we've been lucky to have uh, some of the best voices and the uh, best minds in the paranormal field that have made the trek to Harrisville, Rhode Island every year. It's at the Assembly Theater this year. It's July 13th and 14th. It's a weekend event. It's an indoor-outdoor event where we have uh, teams and vendors and artists and psychics and, you know, uh, underneath tents outside in a beautiful lakeside property and a 300-seat theater that was built in the 1930s for our speakers. And it's a wonderful venue, and um, from very, very humble beginnings where we were in the basement of a church, this has turned into kind of a destination event for a lot of people. We didn't see that coming, but we're very gratified and very grateful and uh, of everybody who's given their time and who's ever attended over the years and really done some good in the community. So we'll be having it again this year one more time. That's uh, July 13th and 14th at the Assembly Theater in Harrisville, Rhode Island. And you can get more information on it, and tickets will be on sale at your website, which is Rise Up Paranormal, R-I-S-E-U-P, paranormal.com. So we That's are correct. Com- uh, there- yeah, there's a link to Paracon. You can get general uh, admission, advanced tickets, and uh, we've got about half our vendor table sold. Uh, so if you want to get in on that, it's $70. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we are going to the break now. We do have the music. So you're listening to Ghost Chronicles International with Steve Parsons and Ron Kolick right here on Tojanet and Pararex Radio and wherever else this fine podcast is being played. We'll be right back. Welcome to Toginet, 
Radio with a cutting edge. Do you have a paranormal event, book, or something else you want people to know about? Then why not advertise it on Ghost Chronicles Radio? With over 150,000 downloads a month, get your message out to an audience that's interested in the subject. We have a plan at a cost that fits your needs. For more information, contact Ron Kolick at anyghostproject at comcast.net or call 978-455-6678. The creepy and the kooky, mysterious and spooky, they all talk ugly kooky, the Parax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal, the topics are abnormal, the Parax family. They're strange. Unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew. It's time to rendezvous as we give awards to the Pillar X family. Helsing Choir sticks into the background. Means we're back to part two of Ghost Chronicles International with our special guest Ken DeCosta from Rise Up Paranormal down there in snowy Rhode Island. Did that work? Yep. Okay, I'm back. <laughs> everything, <laughs> everything, everything went just totally dead there for it a did, minute. It just... like stopped completely i, I know, know. Is it, I is it, has the internet crashed again i don't know can you with us i'm with you that was a great uh, lead-in <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh you have been doing a lot of investigations and i looked at uh some of the places you went and of course uh, a few of them uh, i have uh, been to as well and i, I i'm interested in see uh, how you uh, uh, made out of these places, to be honest with you. Uh, as many of you know, I'm uh, a member of the uh, the Lighthouse Board for the Friends of uh, Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse. Uh, one of the, I love lighthouses, I've done tons of investigations on them, and one of them I saw on your website was Rose Island Lighthouse, which was a, a very cool place to investigate. Uh, when did you go there, and, and uh, anything exciting happened there? Yeah, I think, uh, let me see, we were there back in 2009 and then again two years later. Um, we had an opportunity to go and spend the night there. And, of course, when you go over to Rose Island, you make your reservations and essentially you become the lighthouse keeper for the night and you have the entire island to yourself, which uh, that was pretty appealing. Uh, wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. The second time around, we made a day out of it. We brought fishing poles. We just, <laughs> you know, firewood, had a fire on the beach. It was great. I mean, you talk about this is the ultimate isolation control element in terms of uh, any paranormal investigation you'd ever want. And um, actually, the funny thing that happened, uh, the most profound thing was that I was outside talking to a group of people. 
and some of the investigators had gone into the lighthouse and uh, they had begun their session. So I was kind of lagging behind. So I decided, well, I, you know, I don't want to step in and interrupt what they're doing. So I went to a building that's detached in the front and it's called a foghorn room, oh, which is pretty is awesome. much exactly the, the function is what it sounds like. It's a brick building. It's got some windows. It looks over the Atlantic Ocean. Absolutely stunning. Beautiful. And it's so a bedroom do, now, right? It's a, it, it's a bedroom. It is a, you know, a queen size bed. It's sort of like, you know, the honeymoon suite, if you will, for this place. Hmm. I went in there by myself, let myself in, and I started doing a session. And um, I said, uh, you know, generally, if you can see or hear me, could you give me some kind of indication? So it was... Um, relatively uneventful and then later on when i reviewed my recorder there was a male voice in there that had said the words ken leave me in the room um as clear as i just said it to you and this is something that i didn't hear and it was um, you know a day or two later when all of this came back uh so that was pretty amazing. That is one of those rare instances where, you know, you have control. It's a detached building. It's not like somebody was on the other side of the wall. So, you know, in, in some total, it checked off all the boxes for exactly what you want to hear in terms of um, doing a session and um, getting some kind of acknowledgement or a response. It was, it was, it was wonderful. What was the recorder on? Where, so what was it recorded on? Yes. Oh, the medium was just a uh, Sony. Uh, I can't think of the model number. I oh, have a few okay. of my, you know, Zoom recorders and things like. I think I was just using a Sony RT, whatever it was. Uh, was, it, was, head, it an, oh, was it an EVP session, or, or you did you just have it on? Yeah, no, it was an EVP session where I was, you know, trying to build a bridge, trying to make contact trying to get a response back just by myself in there. And that's what I heard. And then running it through the software programs that we use, it was, you know, below 20 Hertz. It was in that low mode. Um, it wasn't something that was audible. It wasn't disembodied. I didn't hear it through my headphones, which amps sound actually. So, um, yeah, that was pretty amazing. That's, uh, to this date, it's just uh, one of my favorite pieces that we uh, ever took away from a location. Yeah, that's pretty cool. The uh, any any other exciting things happen there, or, or is that uh, probably the most prominent thing? Well, I mean, there was, you know, to me personally, um, not really. But I mean, the group I yeah. was with, they saw some movement, some things like that. There were yeah. other recordings done from uh, from that. It was. Um, it's uh, you've got to be careful because there's a lot of uh, it, it's sort of like a bird sanctuary in a lot of ways. Oh, so yes. You get <laughs> seagulls, you get, you know, turns and, and, you know, so you've got to be able to kind of, uh, you know, differentiate between what's normal out there and uh, and, and what it is yeah. like a yellow scream may not be a yellow <laughs> scream. Exactly. Um, but we had a wildlife expert out there with us that day. So she and she was, you know, immensely uh, uh, helpful to us. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's that's a problem with with any of those lighthouse locations. Is you do have a lot of uh, birds, and and one of the you know the the stories, of course, associated is that you can hear a baby uh, screaming or crying, or you hear screeching, and, and, and yeah. you can't not help that because there are so many. Yeah. Uh, well, birds. the really the really tragic thing about Rose Island is that there was a cholera epidemic that hit um, Newport, Rhode Island, back in the 1800s. And what they did to isolate and quarantine those who had come down with cholera, they brought them to Rose Island. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, what happened is they misdiagnosed other people that probably just had common ailments, and they threw them in there as well. And they didn't have cholera, but eventually, being around others, they uh, they contracted the disease, and uh, many passed away because of it. Right. And that place was also a uh, a mine a storage area during the the war as well. Yeah, I mean, at yeah. one point yeah. it was, yeah. um, uh, you know, part of the battery that you knew, you know, Fort Adams and everything. Yeah. It was, uh, uh, you know, uh, strategic, um, you know, uh, strategic placement against, um, you know, back in the Revolutionary War times. Steve, have you done isolated places like that? Um, well, I suppose the most isolated, uh, yes, we've done isolated locations, uh, not offshore. Um, I think probably the most isolated investigation we ever conducted took place nearly 900 feet underground in, an old, in, in a coal mine. And it, it, yeah. was, it was specifically chosen, um, A, because uh, of the reports that... that um, former miners and current or sort of ex-miners currently employed there as tour guides um, had reported. But also it removed a great deal of the electromagnetic noise and chatter that you would get uh, above ground. Um, you know, 900 feet of solid rock is a pretty good uh, insulator. <laughs> insulator against the electromagnetic fields. And so what we were looking at is... Uh, the influences of the uh, electromagnetism on people. And so we had some very sensitive equipment down there with us during the uh, the time. But I do recall this, the extreme sense of isolation when the, uh, the ex-miner, um, he left us. He, he took us all down there. We'd had the safety briefing. We had the safety equipment, obviously. Um, and then he ascended to the surface and abandoned us for eight hours. Uh, it is a very strange feeling being that far underground, knowing that uh, there is actually only 900 feet, which is a, a very short distance. But, you know, thoughts of, um, you know, stories of trapped miners and it sort of plays on your mind while you're down there, I'm afraid. Right. But what was most interesting, um, because obviously there is no light down there, or there's no n natural light down there at all whatsoever. It's all um, electric illumination. And for, a, for one part of the session, we wanted to test an idea uh, about uh, light, light isolation. Would that have a, a particular effect on people? And so um, we had arranged to turn off the lights in the mine uh, they were quite they were quite few and far between anyway um 
and it got to the point where after you'd been after the lights had been turned off it was so dark actually one person wrote in their in their uh, notebook afterwards that uh, they didn't actually know whether their eyes were open or closed sure. uh, it was so dark they couldn't sense whether their eyes were open or closed uh, but it but mo- so we thought that must be the most fearful situation we could put people into and see how they would respond and what what astonished us was the results people in that situation became much more calm much more relaxed than when they were in the semi-darkness with a 100 watt bulb 50 yards away uh, down the end of the tunnel that was just enough light to allow their imagination to uh, run away with them sometimes. Mm-hmm. Whereas complete and absolute, and I mean absolute darkness, uh, seemed to be, and it was a very relaxing experience rather than a fear-inducing experience. And that was a genuine surprise. Oh, it is intriguing. So, uh, Ken, I also saw another place that uh, we went to, and, and, I, and talking about light and dark, I, I have to ask you about this. It was uh, Rutland Prison Camp. And did you go there at night or in the daytime? And if you got, well, I'll let you answer that question first. Yeah, no, we were, we were there at night. We, um, we started about, uh, it, was just, it was, I believe, uh, late fall, and we started um, maybe 8 o'clock and went till about 2 in the morning. So we were in darkness. Okay. Do you, do you, are you adverse to investigating it in daylight? Oh, no, not at all. Um, in fact, I think we've touched on this previously where um, a, a, I would say a majority of the claims that we get are things that people observe during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, there are benefits for doing it at night um, other than the idea it looks, you know, really creepy on television. But, mm-hmm. you know, beyond that. There are so you know uh, obviously it's quieter. There's less traffic. There's less foot traffic. There's less ambient noise, and it's just a matter of um, the clients being home from work and you're home from work. So there's um, you know there, there's kind of a common sense approach to it. But no, we've we've specifically done places under both conditions where we have gone in at night and then. Uh, arrange to go back during the day. And to be quite honest with you, in some locations, it was just as um, just as active and just as, as interesting and compelling during the day. It, it, it really doesn't matter. I find it interesting if you go if you have the opportunity to go to a place uh, in the daytime ahead of an investigation, I find it uh quite helpful in, in that you get to you know know the 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 site better in the daytime and uh uh to me that's if you can do that i think that's a, a good thing to do but uh, i know sure. parson doesn't care one way or the other right do you steve day by day or by night whenever the uh witness reports it that's when we go right exactly i mean you know, and, and the thing is, uh, night vision cameras and everything notwithstanding, we don't function as well, and we don't see as well in the dark. You know, um, a lot of times people say, well, it enhances, you know, your other senses and everything. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I suppose this, there might be some merit to that. Um, but, 
we just function and observe better in 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 the daylight, uh-huh. you know. And we don't fall you know, asleep we, as easily either. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's at 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 like my age right now. That's always a problem, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you raise that thing about people's uh, this notion that if you remove one of the senses, um, others step in, step up, and and take the strain and become enhanced. There's the research by psychologists who were looking at uh, the performance of uh, pilots actually realized uh, they tested that idea and they found that if you remove one of the senses, the others do not compensate. Um, They do not over time. uh, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Over. Yes. Over over a long period. I was about to say, Ron, over a period of several days, there is an adaption. But over a period yeah. of 24 hours, there is no effect. But what yeah. they also discovered is that the the uh, the other senses try to accommodate the missing sense by producing right. erroneous data. Basically, right. your brain starts to make stuff up. <laughs> yeah. So being on, in the dark, uh, yeah. yeah, being in the dark, you're just you're more likely to bamboozle yourself. Yeah, I mean, you fall back on memory if you see a shadow and that shadow happens through um, to look like a head and shoulders. It's amazing, but the mind will start to add arms and torso and legs and things like that because it's trying to. The brain is a wonderful thing. Our minds try to explain everything. You know, yeah, my, uh, my favorite line um, is always, I know what I saw. <laughs> yeah, I know what I saw. Right. And you just think you know, thinking you don't. <laughs> yeah. You don't you don't know the, exactly. the extent to which your brain is capable of playing tricks on you. But that's the that's the problem we deal with in paranormal investigating. Not not only in seeing things, but in hearing things. I mean, we get the the EVPs, and and people say, "Oh, here, listen to this. It says help me," and and right away you're already skewed. So it, it, you're screwed on that. And uh, are you yeah. take take a smudged up uh, piece of glass or something else and look at the figure in there, and and sure enough, you you start to see a figure in there. So we, we are handicapped by our uh, our brains actually well when we talk about um audibles are you, are you you guys are familiar with the cocktail party effect oh yeah okay i mean where you're <clears throat> you're in a crowded room and and there's just this din of voices and and you know they they all tend to mingle and it turns into one just you know constant buzz and then suddenly someone will say ron And somehow or another, you perk up and you hear that. So, you know, you're just looking for that stimuli, you know, certain keywords that you can pick out of this thing. And um, a lot of times that's what we see with um, ghost boxes and things like that. So it's not just the idea of matrixing in terms of uh, something visual where you know, the eye sees something upside down, the brain turns it right side up. That's how vision works. But we also do it with our ears, our sense of hearing as well. Agreed, agreed. So just a quick uh, hit, because we left uh, Rutland Prison Camp. Anything exciting happened while you were there? Uh, it was pretty uneventful, to be honest with you. To me, yeah. I mean, of course, you know, we, we were out there. I mean, there were some interesting things where we had... Uh, 
you know, we were we were taking EMF readings and things like that. And of course, you know, if you're familiar with Rutland, it's just a bunch of nothing. Exactly. No, no, nowhere. And, you know, we started getting certain readings at, you know, 10 or 15 milligauss and, you know, and, and those were kind of hard to reconcile. You know, we're looking for power lines, you know, we're looking for some other things, you know, two-way communications. But, I mean, you're really out in the middle of any, of, of nowhere. So um, we never really found a reason for it. And, you know, we took it for what it was worth that it was kind of anomalous, but, uh, those are probably the things that stick out to me, uh, more than anything. We were in one particular place. It was enclosed and I uh, got it so long ago. I don't remember what the name the of title? it. They said something. Yeah. They said something about they used it for storage or something like that. Okay. Uh, you know, but that was, that was, that was pretty interesting in terms of why or where, where the origin of these readings coming from? Couldn't really reconcile it. What that puts me in mind of a discovery we made about 15 years ago at a case. We were getting uh, abnormally high electromagnetic readings that we we ruled out the location itself as being the cause um, by disabling the power supplies and and putting line chokes and other things in. Uh, and we were still getting them, and we were absolutely perplexed. So we brought in a, a device that. Um, can look at the frequency as well. What we discovered is we were actually dealing with a long wave, we were dealing with the BBC's World Service transmitters that were located 90 miles away. Um, and it was, it was actually, it is electromagnetic energy, it was radio frequency electromagnetic mm -hmm. energy which the meters were picking up on. And the cause was the BBC and the World Service, the very powerful World Service transmitters. So you know, our problem lay a long, a long way outside the location, but it was still giving us these very, very peculiar, abnormally high electromagnetic field readings on, on the meter we were using. Um, when we we changed the meter to one that was um, looking at the much lower frequency range, and of course they disappeared. Um, so it may, it may, you know, it's it's always worth bearing in mind that sometimes the the anomaly may not be at the location itself, the cause of the anomaly might be some distance away. I believe too, and, and it's just my own beliefs, is that we can generate uh, abnormally high EMF ourselves. And I have absolutely no proof on that to, you know, any paper or anything, but uh, mm -hmm. that's something I've experienced and, and I kind of believe, but uh, once again, I have no proof. I don't know what's Well, on. Russian parapsychologists have looked at that, Ron. Uh, oh, they have. Possible, okay. As a possible ex explainer, as, as uh, to how these some of the Russian psychics, like Yuli Kulagina, right. uh, Nina Kulagina, sorry, was able to uh, manipulate objects, and they measured electromagnetic fields around her that were abnormally high, and they seemed to be coming from her. And oh, they okay. said, that's, and they, you know, and they were. They published several papers on the on this. I sorry, I didn't know. It wasn't human energy fields. In fact, it's perfectly possible to measure the human heart rate out to about 20, 20 yards now. Right. Yeah, I'll tell you what. I am convinced that I've been in, in at least one situation where I think either the human element or human emotion started to trigger EMF devices because. It was a story about an aggressive entity that was in a place that was holding back good entities. And 
you know, there was really nothing going on there, but we had three or four people who started to get really angry and emotional, you know, um, challenging this, this, this entity and people started to really get wound up. And then you start to see the readings going on and I'm unconvinced for a lot of reasons I won't go into, but I, I'm unconvinced there was actually something there, but I, honestly think I was witnessing people affecting the environment, you know, and it's a, obviously it's a much longer story than that, but you know, I've seen these kind of things happen. I've always been fascinated by that aspect of it. It's the very basis of the poltergeist explanation in the human focus, isn't it? Yes. Sure. It absolutely is. When, when those people act as an agent, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, one of the thing, interesting things when they say, well, you know, how do you know it's a poltergeist? So it's like, well, um, one of the things is whatever is being affected in the home, try to keep uh, mindful of who it belongs to because there are there is a chance that if if it's the parents' pictures that are falling off the wall or something, that whatever angst is being directed is being directed at the, that particular or those particular individuals. Yeah. One of the other things that I was fascinated was that uh, we always talk about our five, five senses, but there in animal lives, there, there are six senses and some creatures that are able to uh, sense electrical activity or, and uh, you know, we are, if you believe in uh, what do you call it, Darwinism, that, that we are descended from creatures of the seas, and a lot of these uh, creatures of the sea is, is perhaps uh, hmm. some of us have that uh, same sense in us that has just been dormant. That uh, you know, that's that I, I wasn't aware of that till lately, but uh, that's also intriguing that certain creatures can sense electrical en energy. Yeah, we and, can, Ron. <clears throat> Um, when we talk about the five senses, we're talking about the dominant senses, the senses right. that we respond to and react to. But our brains do respond to magnetic fields, to electromagnetic fields. Uh, they respond to numerous other stimuli. We have sensors built into us like birds do. Um, you know, we have these magnetic particles in our brains that respond to magnetic, the Earth's magnetic field. Um, right. we, ha we have parts of our brain that respond to changes in air pressure. So we do have that. We have we have additional senses, um, for environmental senses, but we re we don't respond to them directly. Uh, some people mm -hmm. have more uh, sort of uh, intense reactions, but they're not considered to be the primary, the five. Pri and that's why they're always seen in a medical book. You will see the five primary senses because there are the secondary senses as well. Well, okay. I think they've been. To a degree, they've, we, they've been bred out of us, too. You know, we've become uh, designer dogs, you know, where <laughs> dogs, dogs, are, <laughs> dog, dog, dogs are bred as fashion accessories now to a certain degree. And the instinct has been bred right out of these animals where a cat gets lost, might be able to survive a dog, forget it. So, you know, you know it, it, it's a silly analogy, but, you know, in a lot, you know, as we have evolved, a lot of that's just been, you know, we don't need it anymore, mm -hmm. you know, because we've got all these conveniences and everything. So it's, uh, it's kind of, it kind of lies dormant in us a little bit, I think.
Unfortunately, we're running out of time, so we have to wrap things up. Uh, our guest today has been uh, Ken DeCosta from Rise Up Paranormal. Uh, check out his website, riseupparanormal.com. Check out the uh, Ocean State Paracon 2019, which is coming up this July. And also, uh, Ken will be joining us at Spirit Quest, Steve. Uh, he will be there. I saw, uh, I saw the, the, the link that you push, put up, and I was looking forward to that one. Yep. Uh, he, he was supposed to be there last year, but unfortunately... I remember. It was paranormal. <laughs> yeah, there was a story I'm sticking to. Thank you so much for, thank you so much for having me back. I'd like, to be, I'd like to be one of those live guys and be like a five-time guest eventually. We'll see what happens. Uh, anything else you want to add before we say goodbye to you? Uh, no. Well, no. <laughs> no I'm, I'm, Damn. Again, um, Damn. I just want to... I just, well, we'll be hitting on it later, but the Ocean State Paracon, once again, July 13th and 14th, Assembly Theater in Harrisville, Rhode Island. I hope uh, as many people within the sound of our voice can join us because it's all, we're going to be announcing our uh, beneficiary, but it's all for a great cause and come down and see us and some of the best minds in the paranormal field. I'm always I got to get you, I got to, I, I got to get you, I got to get you guys there. Oh, I'm only Anyways. a short hop away. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, uh, I forgot what the hell I was going to say. That was so good. <laughs> so, Ken, thank you once again. And, damn, it was good, too. <laughs> All right, check out uh, – join us on uh, Facebook, uh, Spirit Quest X-Files, uh, Spirit Quest 2019 X-Files. Uh, go on there, and you can see where, who other others – And you can vote there. for the cover, the cover fi- picture. Yeah, you can. Anyway. All right, till next time. Good night. God bless, everyone. Good night. Thanks, Ken. Good night. From ghoulies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord.